Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the business of cannabis. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg talk with the CEOs, politicians, and cultural icons driving the cannabis industry forward. This week, however, producer Nick Opich will pinch hit for Lewis while he's off hosting a panel discussion at this week's Green Market Summit. More on that in a future episode. Today, Ann and Nick speak with Tim Blake, one of the earliest pioneers in the cannabis industry. Tim created and has continued to produce the popular cultivation contest, the Emerald Cup, for the past 15 years. For those who don't know, the Emerald Cup is the premier event for medical marijuana cultivators while advancing the concept of sustainable outdoor farming. Tim's history with cannabis goes back decades, making him one of the now rare entrepreneurs who's been in cannabis from the illicit market through today's legal industry. Don't sit back, lean forward. And now, on to our interview with Tim Blake. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim. So, um, can you tell our listeners in your own words, what is the Emerald Cup? Where is it? What is it? And how can people participate? Uh, the Emerald Cup is the largest uh, cannabis competition, organic, in the world. And uh, it's, it's the 15th year. It started up here in Mendocino County at, at Area 101, my Camp County Event Center. It's now based in Sonoma County, the, uh, the fairgrounds there in Santa Rosa. And uh, it's December 15th and 16th this year. It's gone from... Uh, 200 people to 30,000 in 15 years and wow. uh, from 20, from a, you know, a dozen entries to a thousand. Uh, Is it all in California? It's all in California. Yes. We had uh, drop off locations throughout California the last couple of years. So how did you ever get this thing set up to begin with? You know, you've been doing it, this is going to be your 15th year. This seems like an extraordinarily large thing to like kick off back, what was that, 2004 to just get started? What was that like? Uh, you know, I, I'm 61, so I, I grew up really enjoying the county fairs, just traditional fairs and the friendly competitions and the sights and smells. And so we were sitting around and talking about it and we really wanted to, to do that. And we just decided to go for it. At that point, High Times was still in Amsterdam. There was nobody would even think of doing something like this. Uh, and we just went for it. We disguised it as a birthday, uh, party and we didn't even put a poster up. <laughs> We didn't, the first and third winners didn't even show up to get their awards. We still have them, which is a good fortune for us because they were afraid and people were mostly in mass and uh, most people were betting that we'd get arrested before the night was over. Well, um, that was my but, question. So how did you do it? You know, do, uh, was it just under the cover of darkness and, you know, how did you get away with it? Well, my place is in the northern part of uh, Mendocino County. It's right on the highway, but it's, it's in the boonies. So there's not a lot of law enforcement up here. Uh, we didn't have posters out, so nobody knew what we were doing. It wasn't until um, the next year that law enforcement was aware of what we were doing, and then the third year where it, it kind of came to a little bit of a head, but um, they just stood back and allowed it. And it was uh, – I'm looking looking back on it now. I mean, they could have come in and really made a scene out of it, but I think they were so so bewildered they didn't know what to do, and, and they, so they let it go. So can you just take us um, a little further back in your history in the cannabis world? I mean, you've been you've been in the business 
black market and gray market, green market for like decades. So, um, what were you doing before then? And, you know, has this, has the, the, uh, the Emerald Cup kind of taken over your, your business front, um, in the cannabis world? Or are you, do you still have your hand in other endeavors? What's, I guess, what's your journey like and what are you doing now? Well, I was a hyperactive kid, um, and uh, thankfully I wasn't given Ritalin or something like that. I found cannabis in the seventh grade, and uh, it was a, a miracle for me. And uh, that led to me starting to, you know, deal small amounts uh, beginning in high school. My family moved from San Jose to Capitola near Santa Cruz on the beach in Santa Cruz County. And my, my uh, family bought an old uh, bar right in downtown and all of a sudden the barn would went up and my mom had a gallery and we were representing all the local people and they were all starting to smoke cannabis and I was getting all the cannabis out of my parents' drawers and everywhere I could. And some of the local kids that were you know, maybe 20 years old that were dealing thought that uh, I would say if something happened, maybe my dad would take care of them. And so I started dealing pretty good by the time I was 15, 16 and, uh, you know, getting a kilo. Back then they were kilo and we were selling lids. You know, you'd get a kilo, which would be 2.2 pounds. And you'd make 32 ounces up to sell at school. And then you'd get, you know, three or four extra ones for the weekend. And I'd go to school on a Friday and sell 32 lids and uh, <laughs> keep it three or four. And we would go to uh, the bottom of this bar, which had a pool table. And I lived in the, uh, in the old keg room with black lights. So I had black lights in the keg room. We'd all, all crawl in there. We thought that if we closed it up and there was no air in there and we breathed that air, we'd get higher. Um, oh, surprise <laughs> You know, we'd go in there with the black lights and the, uh, you know, the walls going and we'd smoke 20 joints and, and try not to pass out. But it was a, it was a fun thing. It was really innocent. And, uh, from there it really grew into a, a larger business. Uh, very quickly cannabis, uh, you know, started being brought in, uh, 100,000 pound loads from, from Asia and large uh, amounts of hash and whatnot. And so, and from South America also. So I became one of those guys that, uh, if you brought a hundred thousand pound load in and four people got twenty five thousand pounds and maybe five people four or five people got four or five thousand pounds and then four or five got a thousand pounds. I was kind of one of those guys. So I started doing that in my early twenties and uh watched that whole uh business evolve through the late eighties and uh, from the late seventies and early eighties. And uh it was a flourishing business and it was it was wonderful. There were no weapons, nobody robbed anybody. We were all all making money. It was all pretty much set up. And it was, it was interesting because you had the different families and factions. You know, you had the, you know, kind of the, the Jewish people doing their thing and you had the Italians coming off the boats and then you had the surfer hippie kids. And so, and pretty much you worked for one or the other. And I was fortunate that I really worked for all of them and, uh, and knew people throughout the industry and uh, could kind of work the different loads. And so I, I, I did quite a bit of work back then. And, uh, then one day, am I going past my minute here? No, you're good. No, you're you're good. good. You're this good. is fascinating. Well, and so then one day a friend of mine came in, uh, and he was connected to the Big Sur people, the Big Sur Holy Weed and whatnot, and uh, he showed me a jar which became known later as the Magic, the Chronic, the Grease, three names back in the 80s. It was the first super pot. And he said, you know, we're going to be – it was the frostest. I've never seen anything like it, and it was twice as strong as anything. I, I think it probably stronger than the OGs and everything today. But he said, we're going to all be growing up. One of those lights you see like in Safeways within two years because they're going to bust all the loads over the next two years and we're all going to have to start growing indoors. And nobody had ever heard of indoor at the time. And I looked at him like he was out of his mind. I mean, I had a thousand pounds in my garage 
I was thinking, uh, really? You know, I bought everything he had on him. And I had to pay twice what anybody would pay for anything because nobody had ever seen anything like that. And uh, a year and a half later, I had to go back and beg for that clone. And you had to give up a third of your crop for six crops. You couldn't cut one of the clones to sell or they'd come and, you know, pummel you and beat you senseless. And uh, I had to cave in and go get that because they took out, if you go back, look historically between uh, 84 and 87, they took out about 15 loads in the Bay Area and the West Coast. They busted them all, all about 100 to 200,000 pound loads. And uh, everybody went into those uh, shops and into those garages and started growing indoors or came up into the Emerald Triangle and started growing. Now, I came up in the Emerald Triangle here in 1979, my first year up here, and we were growing cannabis. I mean, most of it was being uh, brought in from, you know, the ties, tie sticks and uh, all the Colombian South American. But there was a small market for locally grown cannabis up here, but it wasn't that big in the 70s. It really blew up after, after they took all those loads out and there wasn't any more uh, international product coming in. And that was really the beginning of indoor and really the beginning of the large scale outdoor up here on the Emerald Triangle. So as like a legit drug dealer, at least in the, back in the day of what it was, like how is this last year in California, like just has it just blown your mind? Like now that everything's legal, everybody can just go and buy whenever they want, whenever they want. Like how is how has your perspective changed on the industry in this last year? Well, I voted for 64 under the you know guys that we had to stop having people go to prison and we need to get cost-effective access to medicine. Um, I thought we'd have a three- to five-year rollout where small farmers and product makers would have a chance to survive until you know they were really overrun by the, the big business people. But with opening up large-scale farming a month after 64 went in and shutting down the home manufacturing uh, and you know water, water boards and fish and game coming in so heavily onto the farmers up here, um, it's great to see that, you know, my 90-year-old uncle from the Bay Area has got access to cannabis, and I'm bringing it to him. He's a priest. He's been a priest for 50 years. And it's great that my family and everybody's families now feel comfortable to let that happen. So I'm glad that that happened. And the gauntlet up here in Mendocino isn't anymore. Nobody's getting busted on the roads anymore. Uh, so that's all really good. But there's really like an extinction event happening with, you know, a lot of the farmers and cultivators and product makers up here in the Triangle and, and uh, around the state uh, because the fishing uh, water boards, fishing game and water boards are coming in and sh shutting people down. I don't know if you've heard, at Humboldt, they're giving $10,000 fines out uh, left and right or more, $20,000 a day fines uh, for not shutting down. And, you know, they're going to places like Panther Gap and Salmon Creek, and they're putting out 30 or 40 of these notices. Uh so they're really, I mean, there's more for sale signs for, you know, property in Mendocino and Humboldt than ever before. And, and uh, we were talking about how many people would actually make it through to this new world and, and uh, be successful. So, I, I you know, I'm, it's really a double-edged sword there. I'm, I'm so excited about where the industry is growing. I'm so excited about the access for medicine and the lack of people going to prison uh, and going across the country and the world with cannabis. But seeing that where it started, that spark, and so many of these you know, older families that have been here for years and decades doing that that aren't going to really make it to the promised land. It's almost like it's on Moses, you know. They, they got it all the way there, but they're not going to participate in that. And so, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's hard on the one side and great on the other. So are you, I mean, as Nick said, you know, this, this year must have been 
you know, di- very different for you. But you know, you're not you're not that guy that's that's sitting back and, and taking a nap and being like, oh, we did this, it's done. You seem to believe that there is still so much more to be done. Can you talk about that a little? Well, yeah. Well, about uh, three years ago, I had a friend come and say, you're not making any money in the cup because I know you give it away and you don't make any money in the black market because you're too public. Why don't we start going and making products? And we spent about six months and started looking at what that meant. And that really, to me, meant oil. It meant extracts. It meant going into products. And so we really saw that and we started doing genetic research to get the right terpene profiles and the right strains. And we developed a series of companies and I bought a manufacturing plant in Willits that we got a type 7 on. And uh, so we've been very proactive and we've really built uh, a vertically integrated system so that we can, we have permitted farms, permitted nurseries, permitted, you know, we have our own strains, we have our manufacturing, we have our products and distribution. So we're going to do quite well ourselves because I was really, you know, able to see that uh, come in. But, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I tried with the cup. We've been trying all this, all these years telling people, you know, you're going to need to do organic high grade medicine to be able to hold that niche. Cause of course in the alcohol industry, the fastest growing part of the, of the industry is the high end. It's the microbreweries, the wine, the spirits mm. and whatnot. And two buck Chuck's going to take all that from the cannabis world from all the big scale farming and in you know, San Joaquin Valley and Central Valley. So the farmers up here have to find their niche. And so uh, that's what we've really been trying to teach them is how to really get to the highest end of the market and get their niche and be able to be able you know, come out. But, you know, people up here in these mountains, they're, they're quiet, introverted people who are, are not really built for, you know, tooting their horn and social media and going out and getting their 15 minutes of fame. That's really not who many of us were. You know, and so there's a whole different way of marketing and branding and bringing a product forth. And now the people that are more boisterous and loud, I mean, look, branded from third gen, all these people that can just, you know, uh, you know, shout out and, and do that are, are really the beneficiaries of this. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's just an amazing thing to have watched and seen. And, uh, but we were proactive, working quite well. So are you seeing among, you know, your, your, the farming community, the, is there still resistance to, you know, these bigger companies with these big investors? Um, I mean, we're talking big from a relative term in cannabis world. Um, you know, are, are they embracing that or are they still saying, I, this is my farm. This is my livelihood. I want to grow the way I want to grow. I don't want to scale. I just want to do my stuff. I mean, is that, is that still the prevailing feeling there or is there almost this, you know, embracing of, of the legitimizing of, of their industry? You know, uh, you got a thousand applications in Mendocino County out of probably, you know, seven or 8,000 cultivators. So it's really only about 10%. I think, uh, even less in Humboldt. I think a lot of people up here thought they'd get a couple more years on the black market. Um, you know, it used to be, you had to go out and fly a plane or a chopper to come out and find a crop and then do a lot of uh, labor-intensive stuff to get the warrants and come out and then do a bust. Now fishing game and, and uh, waterboards just do Google Map, and they just find your crop, send <laughs> you a notice, go to your day, $10,000 or $20,000 a day fine. You go to your tax uh, you know, building, and you find out you've had $100,000 in fines within one week, and you shut down pretty quick. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of those people that they would get that are now finding out that's not true. Um, and so, you know, we've been advocating for 15 years uh, that it was going to go legal eventually, that you really needed to get your step, your game up. 
You know, uh, a lot of people up here were able to make a pretty good living growing a product that wasn't that good because of the black market and going back east. I mean, if you didn't mm -hmm. grow something that well, you could still sell it when it dried out in the summertime and get good dollars for it. So there wasn't really the the incentive to to really become a high end farmer. It was really more for people making money, uh, getting bulk and and making the money and moving on. Um, Humboldt had. Uh, a lot more of an opportunity to do large-scale farming. They really didn't pick on Humboldt much in the last 10 years. Mendocino, they've really beaten us up. And so we've had to become uh, better cultivators because we can't grow as much. Uh, at one point, a couple years back, 25% uh, of the entries were from Mendocino County, and 75% of the winners were from here. And very so, few were coming from Trinity or Humboldt at that time. So I want to touch on something that you've kind of briefly brought up in two separate topics here. You're talking about all the work that the farmers are doing and the, and the collective there. And then you're talking about everything, the relationships with, uh, with the, the police officers. And part of your history uh, in cannabis is through the community organizing. You know, you're known for uh, doing one of the first gatherings of law enforcement with cannabis farmers to openly discuss how they can work together. Can you talk about just uh, building that bridge, I guess, between these two diametrically opposite, I guess, uh, uh, ends of this cannabis sector. Well, Pebbles Trippett, who's a, a lifelong, you know, ad activist, and uh, got herself arrested to uh, secure the right for us to move medicinal cannabis uh, in vehicles, came to me and said, "Tim, you know, you're you're uh, the Emerald Cup. You're right here in the heart of the Emerald Triangle. I'd like to sponsor the sheriff's debates, and for the first time in the world, bring together law enforcement and cannabis farmers to figure out how we can live together." And um, my, my brother was captain of Watsonville PD. I've got three cousins that were cops. My uncle was a cop. I got lawyers in my family, priests. And I don't come from here. I'm from the Bay Area. And so I originally, and so I thought, you know, this is a good thing because this is what we have to do. We have to spark this, this conversation, get it going, and this is the way we're going we're gonna to change the, the, the world in this country. So we did that at my place at Area 101. We had four sheriff candidates come up. Uh, it went so well. We had about 400 people there that day uh, that we did the runoff that came, came through with uh, Sheriff Broyne and Tom Allman. We got Tom Allman elected, who's still our sheriff to this day. And then the DA candidates wanted to do that, and they came up. So in the course of and they had the runoff there, too. So in the course of about a few months, we had four major gatherings with law enforcement and the district attorney's office. It was the first time in this country that that had been done. And it really paved the way a couple years later for us to do a program called the 9.31 program, which was the first program where you could grow up to 100 plants legally in full sun with a permit from the sheriff's department in the county. And that went from 12 people to almost 100 the second year, and it was about to take over all of Northern California. Every other county was going to join in with us. And I said either the DA is going to come in, the DEA is either going to come in and, and bust this, or they're going to have to stand back because we're about to take over. And they came in and busted the program. Tom Allman came on. And did a public uh, broadcast interview uh, where press release where he showed that they had pictures of large cartel uh, grows going on. They were they were getting for the DEA, and they didn't use those and go bust those. They came and busted his people that were supporting his program. And what they did was they said, well, yeah, and if you give another permit out, we'll arrest the DA, the supervisors, uh, county uh, council, geez. all. And so they, they got to find out what it was like. In fact. Um, Boy, uh, Randy Johnson, who was the sheriff that came in and took the program over for Tom because none of the sheriffs wanted to do it, he came in and said, look, I didn't want to do this. Tom begged me to do it. Nobody would take it. All I know about you guys is bust you, take your pot down, put you in jail. 
A year later, he was teaching us how to look more like the vineyards. And we'd say, gosh, Randy, what do we look like? Because he was looking at everyone's farms. And he'd go, mm, you know, you need to do some of this. And we'd go, oh, man. And Randy had become the expert guiding us on how to make better farms. And uh, when it came down and they did all those busts, Randy said, you know, now I know what it's like for you to, to live with this. Because I lie there at, at night with my wife wondering if the feds are going to come bust us. And uh, so that was a revolutionary thing. And without taking too much credit for our county and our community, that really was well before Colorado and Washington. It really spearheaded the whole uh, movement in this country. It really opened up all the doors. And then we had to kind of recede back into the woodwork, and Colorado and Washington went legal, and then it was off the races. But people don't remember that after Colorado and Washington went legal, eight former heads of the DEA – uh, pushed Obama to rescind that and not allow it to go legal. And it turned out that two of those people were running the largest drug testing uh, companies in the country. And uh, so under the United Nations. So they, they really pushed back. But at that point, there was no turning back. So uh, I was really, really proud of that. And uh, and that was really a, a great moment. I The other thing that happened was that Tom Allman came in and uh, at, I asked if I could do a, a dispensary at Area 101. Uh, called Mendocino um, uh, Farmers Collective because we wanted to help outdoor bud get into the markets down in the dispensaries because most of it was indoor. And he said yes, but he had to go talk to uh, Camp and the DEA about it. And he uh, through my my partner came back and left a message and said, well, there's good news and bad news. The good, good news is they're going to let you do that. The bad news is you didn't tell me who you were. And Tom was just a regular lifelong cop. And I've been basically, I mean, my, my book that I wrote is called Dancing with the Feds, or it was at the time. And uh, I'd had several interactions with the Feds over the years. And uh, he said, you know, your your friends down there at the camp and the, and the Feds, they didn't forget you, Tim. And they wanted you to know that they're still going to get you. <coughs> and uh, I went, well, I guess, I, I guess I'm still well known. But uh, <laughs> well, then, we'll make sure to put a link to the to your book in our in our show. That's a pretty yeah. wild story. You know, you, you mentioned your um, your family and you've got it sounds like a family full of cops, priests and lawyers. Um, but you also work directly with your daughter and your nephew in the cannabis business. What the heck is Thanksgiving like in your house? Uh, you know, it's, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I. You know, I didn't see my daughters for a while. I split up with my wife. I came up here uh, from Santa Cruz, and, and uh, Taylor uh, came up to my youngest daughter, came up and started working with me, and, and uh, over a number of years um, uh, became my, my co-partner, you know, producer, uh, co-producer in the cup. And uh, so, but my family, usually we go down and we're with my family down south, and they're... Uh, you know, they're not a lot of, they're not cannabis smokers. And so we're, we're pretty straight at our, our, uh, Thanksgiving gatherings down in the Bay Area. Now I go up to Nikki and Swami's for some Thanksgivings when I don't go that way. And, uh, those are, are very, uh, cannabis filled events. And, uh, people eat a lot of food and smoke a lot and we have a good time. And so I really enjoy those Thanksgiving dinners we've had at Nikki and Swami's. Uh, but, you know, my family down there, uh, you know, I got a brother-in-law, like I said, Captain Watsonville PD, and a lot of traditional workers and stuff. So, and a lot of kids around and stuff. So, we're, we're not smoking cannabis down those parties. 
<laughs> and how did you, um, you know, this has been your your life's career. How did you talk to your kids about it? What what dad did for a living when they were growing up? We didn't. Uh, I'm an old school <laughs> guy back then. Uh, you didn't uh, include your wife, and you know, if you were, you know, if you were thinking right, you didn't include your wife or your partner in any of that. There were major prison sentences. I mean, once they got the federal minimum mandatories, you're looking at 10, 20 years. Uh, nobody knew what we did. Uh, I didn't talk on the phone. I remembered 500 phone numbers. I can't remember 10 now because they're all wow. on speed dial or whatever. But back then, you didn't write anything down. Uh, I, I burned my books every day. I burned a new book. Um, you lived a very, very uh, quiet life. There were no big trucks. There were no uh, living large um, you just didn't do it because you were looking at, uh, you know, up to 20 years in prison. And so you, you kept it quiet. So that's awesome that you have your, your daughter helping you out with, uh, with the cannabis, with everything with the Emerald Cup. I remember when uh, Arizona was first going uh, medical, my dad and I explored, like, how we could uh, uh, try and get a license, see if we could open up a dispensary. And so I really feel like there definitely is a, a, a good opportunity there for, like, family businesses to come up in the cannabis industry. So it's really great um, always hearing these kinds of stories, and that's an awesome one. Um, but I do want to jump back to the cup real quick. Um, can you talk to us about uh, what what you and your daughter have set up for this year's lineup? What 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 are some things that attendees can expect to to see while they're at while they're at the Emerald Cup this year? Uh, the first year we were in Sonoma County, uh, the budget was four hundred forty thousand. This year, the musical budget is over fifteen five hundred fifty thousand. Uh, the full budget is well over three million. We spent an extra million dollars last year on the show. I've got new partners, uh, Red Light Management are my minority partners in the cup, and they also own Star Hill Presents. Uh, these folks are the ones that discovered Dave Matthews. They have Fish, Country Star, uh, Luke Bryant, uh, all the EDM, Electronic. They own parts of Outside Lands, Bonnaroo. They brought a world-class team in, and we've just upgraded every aspect of the show. When you start putting on a show, you know, where 30,000 people are coming together for a weekend, you're running a city. And the ins and outs and the experience you want to give to people is very comfortable, and that was well beyond my my uh, expertise. And so we brought these this team in. Uh, they have one of the largest talent agencies in the world. They've helped us book an incredible show. We've got Gogo Bordello coming in. We've got Big Gigantic, Margot Price. Uh, you know, we've got Protégé. Uh, we've got a couple other major acts we're going to announce, a couple acts I can't announce yet because of uh, – uh, other events they're doing, but uh, I'm just really, really proud of the, the uh, musical lineup we're coming in with. Uh, the speakers line up the same thing. We got Lori Ajax coming in, and, you know, Jeffrey Lowenfels. We just have so many great speakers coming in this year. Um, I'm just stepping back and just uh, I'm amazed at the quality of people coming in. Rick Doblin from Maps. We're just really expanding it out. You know, we have three stages. Um, there's there's so much for somebody to do when they come in there between the music and the speakers. Uh, we just have a lot going on. We're, we're, um, we're going to uh, have uh, even a larger consumption area this year. Uh, it's hard to believe. If you guys got there last year, I mean, I couldn't even believe it. I saw these tents, and I thought we'd never fill them. The first year we went there, we had the little cow palace, and I thought we'd never fill that. And now we're four times as large. And I just stand back, and, and it's just unbelievable. We've got over 500 vendors coming in. You know, so, so along with that, go ahead. No, I no, I 
to say about the the consumption side of it. So, um, you know, there's a lot in the news about, you know, these these emerging lounges and and the culture around that. And it seems, you know, you've brought the Emerald Cup to be more than just a a competition. It's a true festival in every sense of the word. Um, And that uh, that obviously includes consumption. Can you, um, and my original question was, can you consume at the cup? But you can. So what was the process like getting that approved? And was last year the first year that you were able to do that? Oh no, we've been the cup has been a consumption event ever since we started. We really oh, have, okay. We, people don't realize we've never backed out. We've been a consumption, uh, completely integrated event since day one, and uh, you know it's it's just an amazing thing to go in there and see all the action going on. Uh, we have 500 vendor booths. Last year we had 1,500 companies on a waiting list to come in. Is there going to be a Tim Blake? Uh, smoke experience where you can get in the dark room with the glo- with the the lights and everything and kind of get the feel how you used to do it. You know what? That's funny. We should do that. They they talk about that. We'll have a little area 101. At area 101, when you come up to my place and come off the highway, you see a, a life size billboard that's hand painted with UFO landing in the forest saying "Welcome to Area 101." And you come around right there at the corner, and I got a 1,500 pound Ganesh and a 6,000 pound Buddha and a life size marble Christ. And it's about all religions coming together in peace and harmony, recognizing we're all praying to the same God. And so when you come to the old uh, events at, at Area 101, you get this really incredible experience of, like, a very alternative lifestyle. And so we're recreating that at the Cup. One of the partners uh, came up last year, and he saw that, and he said, why isn't this in Sonoma, all, all the altars and all the stuff that you have? And I said, because when we were first starting, it was radical enough to have cannabis. and started having Ganesh statues. Jews and Buddhas and stuff. I, I thought it'd be a little overwhelming, and so we didn't really really bring that in. We kind of like downplayed it, uh, but but now we really are integrating that in there and into the whole event. And so uh, you know, people are going to get much more of a, uh, what I'm about, which is I've been meditating since I was 16 years old. I'm really more of a monk. I've been doing meditation for 45 years. Wow! Uh, Before it was cool. And so, yeah, for uh, for a long time. Yeah, I was, uh, you guys are probably way too young, but, uh, Baba, Baba Ram Das was, uh, the really big kind of guru who came out with Be Here Now in the 70s. And Bhagavan Das was his partner, kind of the kid that went with him to India and they came back and wrote a book. He wrote a book called Be Here Now, which was a huge bestseller. And Ram Das is now an international name. I was up at UCSC like at 17 or 18 and had a little meditation, uh, event. And there's only like eight people and I was sitting there meditating with, Baba Ram Das and Bhagavan Das and didn't even know who they were because they weren't famous yet. And then, of course, six months later, he dropped that book and became world-renowned. And uh, so I've, I've been studying and following spirituality and UFOs and every form of, uh, you know, uh, spiritual aspect of, of our life uh, since I was a kid. And so that's what Area 101 is, you know, and that's what I am. And so I'm really hardcore, organic across the board person. I mean, you can't be a, a, a you can't provide food at our event without being organic. We've got oh, out all Okay, the- that's a, a stipulation in the in the contracts for the vendors and everyone it has to be organic. It has to be organic. We do a food buyout with the fairgrounds where we pay $2 for every attendee so that they don't open up their food vending and sell hot dogs and Twinkies and whatnot. I'm not against hot dogs, they just have to be organic. Um, but um, so we go to great lengths all of our vent Vendors are vetted out, and so Hazel, our sponsor vendor coordinator, goes through every vendor and goes back and finds out where they came from, who they are, and whether they fit with our uh, 
with our demands and, and requests and stuff. So last year, like I said, we had 1,500 extra booths because because of that, people come to the Cup and they know they're going to get quality products, quality food, a great experience. You know, I used to go and pick up 100 couches from the uh, Goodwill, and I'd go pick up 100 couches and drive them down there so people would have couches to sit on. And, uh, and then we'd give them away afterwards to all the vendors and sponsors. And uh, it was just something we did until the until they told me that there was kind of this whole thing with uh, fire hazards and all the rest of it. You know, you can't do that fun stuff anymore. But <laughs> Once you get too big, all the rules hazards. come into play. Um, all of our decks are organic. Everything you see there is organic. That's amazing. So what, and what we'll do is we'll put links to everything, um, you know, how people can attend, where they can buy tickets, um, if they're a vendor, um, have them call Hazel. Um, but, you know, I, I think what you're doing is great. I think, um, you know, we're all really excited, um, for the upcoming Emerald Cup. It sounds like you've got an amazing lineup. Um, so before we let you go, we do a segment every week called Puff Puff Pass, uh, where we ask our guests to tell us um, quickly two things that they love about the industry and one thing they hate about the industry. So Puff Puff Pass, Tim. Well, two things I love about the industry is the sense of community uh, of us over the years. We're just a really tight-knit uh, community that really look out for each other, and I, I just love uh, that part of the community uh, in the industry. And then the other part of it is just uh, the inspiration. I'm a cancer survivor and, uh, I'm really an evangelist for the medicinal side and to see the inspiration coming, uh, to my uncle, to my families, to the whole world of what cannabis is doing, whether it's adult use, whether it's medicinal, uh, that inspiration that I see from the relief or the, the happiness or the joy people get. I'm, I'm just so excited to be part of this industry and, you know, maybe I throw a third one in there, which is I see at the cup every year is the, the quality of the, packaging and the design and what people, the attention people are putting into their brands and what they're doing. I'm just honored to be part of this community and to see all my fellow uh, cultivators and product makers really stepping up and just doing an amazing job with delivering really incredible products. You know, that's, that's something else. Um, what I don't like about the industry is the, the opposite, the sense that we're losing that community. You know, back in the old days, every outlaw you know, wanted their fellow outlaw to make it because we all could sell our products. So there was no, comp no, no competition. We just wanted everybody to make it. And now it's becoming kind of a dog eat dog, every man for themselves. You know, people are, you know, competitive with each other and they're kind of eyeing each other and they're, and it's just not quite that same. There's something about when everybody's an outlaw and you're all, it's us against them where it becomes very tight knit. It's, it, it's a little different. Now it's becoming a capitalistic commercial marketplace. And I don't like that too much. And, uh, you know, I don't like that the large commercial players are are taking over so quickly. It's really sad to see uh, big business. I mean, that's what we are. We're a free enterprise, a capitalist society, so that's what we're going to be. Uh, but to see how quickly big business, and not the tobacco industry, heck, it's everybody. It's the, it's the Canadians, the you know, everybody everywhere is just coming in, and it's going to make it, like I said, very hard for the small farmer, the small product maker, to maintain and hold on to their way of life. And, uh, I, you know, I can't begrudge anybody, but, uh, because that's what we did. We opened the business and they all came in, but, you know, uh, this is what we live in now. So, yeah, I was going to say, so yeah, it's definitely grown from like a grassroots efforts to more of this corporatized big business experience. Do you think there's still room for the little guy or is that door already closed? There is, if they grow a fine, uh, flower or if they make an incredible product, 
uh, like we said, the highest end, the highest end growing market in the, in the uh, spirits industry are are the high end. You know, the fastest growing, I should say, and it's all you know, alcohol, you know, small vineyards, uh, craft breweries, and so you, I've been saying with the cut forever, you've got to stop thinking about selling to the East Coast and just making whatever you want because you can you can do it. You've got to really realize that it's time to grow a fine flower and make a great product and really take pride in that and put your passion into it because those people are always going to have a place in the market. Third gen, uh, you know, you can go down the list, you know, aficionado, you know, I can, you know, Eden Farms, all the winners of the cup, all the people that year after year at the top, they're not going to have any problem. Okay. But if you're not putting that effort in there and thinking you're going to get by with an average product, there's no market for that. You can't even sell B grade anymore. You go out there. I'm a I'm a black market guy, so I can't do it anymore. But I talk to everybody, and I know all the deals going on. And it doesn't matter whether Georgia or Pennsylvania, or whatever. They don't want B grade. They want A grade OG. That's mm-hmm. all they're buying. So if you don't grow A grade, where do you sell it? I mean, you got to crush it into foils uh, and what, and then you're getting 200 pounds. So if you want to make it, you got to step up. And you know, with regenerative farming and sustainable sustainable and biodynamic that we're teaching, people are really embracing that. So what we are seeing is that people are getting the message and they're really learning that when you do it biodynamically or completely organically with the right, you know, um, with the right use of compost and teas and organic materials, your terpenes, your profiles, your flavors, your high is so much better and people will get that. The one thing people have got and they still want to go for the indoor in L.A., but that's because they've been taught that. I mean, if, if we hadn't gone about this breach birth, there'd be no indoor. We'd all be outdoor. And when people start realizing that full sun outdoor really delivers a better high and a, a better medicinal effect, uh, we'll have more and more of a chance. But it's an uphill battle. We're looking at it. And, I mean, you're talking, you know, 60 to 90% of the people probably won't make it. Wow. And it's going to be a, it's gonna, I, Yeah. It, yeah. It, it is. But, you know, um, on the other hand, when – I feel that, but when you take that aside, which is true, absolutely, it hurts. Then you get to the point where look what's happening with cannabis worldwide. We're taking over this country. We're rolling across the world, Canada, Israel, Colombia, Mexico. We're impacting Italy. Everybody. I was just in Italy, and it's, it's legal there. <laughs> and when people use cannabis, they think better, they eat eat better, they are better, they feel better, and we're a better world. So we're going to help the world reclaim itself with a peaceful revolution through cannabis. So overall, uh, there's nowhere to go but forward. What an awesome place to end on. Thank you so much, Tim. Yeah, Tim, this is I've got to say, if I can't get one minute, if I get one minute in there, we have 27 contests. We have 27 contests. We've gotten larger than ever. We've worked so hard with lobbyists and regulators to make this work. You've seen the problems with Chalice. You've seen what High Times has done. We're doing a completely legitimate contest. We're going to have a personal a personal cultivation part so people that are small can enter. Uh, we've added on hydrocarbon because that's now legal. I used to say that if as long as it was cans of butane and doing it in you know garages blowing each other up, but that's not the case. It's all legal now. So we're bringing in the hydrocarbon, adding that in. Uh, you know, go to the website. You're going to see 27 different contests. It's just amazing to start with a flowers contest, and now we're sitting there with 27 different contests. So uh, come join us. We will uh, definitely uh, have that this year. It'll be bigger and better than ever. 
Great. We look forward to it. And we'll include the links to everything that Tim talked about in our show notes. So, Tim, thank you so much again. This has been a real pleasure for us. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Anytime. Great. Thanks again to Tim Blake, the founder of the Emerald Cup. Find out more about them by visiting their website, theemeraldcup.com. They've got some great information there. Uh, Find out how to get a booth, find out how to submit, find out how to participate, um, or find out just how to attend. Uh, If you want to chat with us, you can always find us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at KCSA underscore cannabis, as well as at our website at kcsa-cannabis.com or feel free to drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. And please don't forget to subscribe. We love it. Thank you guys so much. That's one take, Shay. One take.